0: Welcome and hello. I'm Valerie Dalton, founder and artistic director of the Live Literature Company. This podcast is the second in our series on deafness, in which I will focus on Harriet Martineau and her deafness. Much of this podcast was given in my talk to the Martineau Society, Harriet Martineau and her deafness, disability or empowerment. In this talk I refer to Anka Ryle's study, Medical Body and Lived Experience, The Case of Harriet Martineau, also to Susan Burr's paper, Harriet Martineau, Gender, Disability and Liability, and my grandmother, Vera Wheatley's biography, The Life and Work of Harriet Martineau. I would first like to talk about Harriet's childhood. Harriet was, among many of her gifts, musically gifted, but at twelve years old she began to notice a small but perceptible loss of hearing. By the time she was sixteen this had become a pronounced loss of hearing, causing her considerable personal and social distress. She wrote later in life in Household Education about the onset of her deafness. Now and then someone made light of it now and then someone told her that she mismanaged it and gave advice which being inapplicable grated upon her morbid feelings but no one inquired what she felt or appeared to suppose that she did feel many were anxious to show kindness and tried to supply some of her privations but it was too late she was shut up, and her manner appeared hard and ungracious, while her heart was dissolving with emotions. Her writing describes that within her immediate family circle, Harriet had, at age 16, become alone and excluded. It also appears she received little sympathy from either her parents or siblings. But Harriet determined never to become a burden. In her later autobiography, she writes, I must take my case into my own hands, and with me, dependent as I was upon the opinion of others. This was redemption from possible destruction. Instead of drifting helplessly as hitherto, I gather myself up for a gallant breasting of my destiny and in time I reached the rocks where I could take a firm stand. I felt that here was an enterprise, and the spirit of enterprise was roused in me. It seems evident to me that what we know of Harriet's independence of mind, as shown in so much of her writing, was formed directly from her experience of coping in her own independent manner with the deafness that emerged in her childhood. Alongside this, she also developed a great self-discipline, and at the age of 28, when she first began using an ear trumpet, she was able to greatly reduce the barrier which her hearing loss had created between herself and other people. This use of the ear trumpet was a visible sign of what some contemporaries would highlight as a disability. Irving Goffman defines it as a stigma. These critics portray Harriet as stigmatised by a disability and also marginalised by her gender. They exaggerate her appearance with the ear trumpet as grotesque and abnormal. The 19th century politicians and commentators who did not want to accept Harriet as a significant writer and social theorist tried to socially disqualify Harriet on account of both her deafness and her sex. The MP, Lord Brougham, dismissed Harriet as the little deaf woman from Norwich. In her 1834 letter to the deaf, Harriet encourages this community she is writing to to nevertheless take up the ear trumpet. She writes... Yet how few of us will use the helps we might have? How seldom is a deaf person to be seen with a trumpet? How should I have been diverted if I had not been too much vexed at the variety of excuses that I have heard on this head since I have been much in society? The trumpet makes the sound disagreeable, or it is of no use Or it is not wanted in a noise, because we hear better in a noise, nor in quiet, because we hear very fairly in quiet, or we think our friends do not like it, or we ourselves do not care for it, if it does not enable us to hear general conversation, or a hundred other reasons just as good. Now, dear friends, believe me, these are but excuses I've tried them all in turn, and I know them to be so. The sound soon becomes anything but disagreeable, and the relief to the nerves arising from the use of a trumpet is indescribable. None but the totally deaf can fail to find some kind of trumpet that will be of use to them if they choose to look for it properly and give it a fair trial. One of those who did this was Beethoven, whose deafness I will talk about in our next episode. On reading my grandmother Vera Wheatley's biography on Harriet, one of the periods of Harriet's life that most struck me was her travels round America in the 1830s using this ear trumpet. The strength of character this journey demonstrates is totally remarkable. She did not only travel as tourist, she engaged actively in very contentious debates about racial segregation and the slave trade, writing passionately against both practices as an outspoken abolitionist. That many of these extremely fractious engagements were entered into using an ear trumpet summons up a picture to me of immense courage and strength of character. In the 1834 letter to the deaf, she had written, Another kind of person says, How I wish you could hear that song, or that harp in the next room, or those sweet nightingales, if we happen to be out of doors. Whether any or all these doings and sayings befall us, we must bravely go on taking our place in society. How fiercely and proudly Harriet took her place and made for herself a place in society. In doing so, she demonstrates that whole categories of agendered behaviour are insignificant, if not obsolete. I also agree with the recent critics, Alison Winter and Maria Frawley, who argue that Harriet overcame all the limitations of the sick room. For in addition to learning how to live best with her deafness, she also in later life suffered a long period as an invalid. Maria Frawley argues that Harriet achieved an expanded vision of greater truths as a result of her experience as an invalid, and that this gave her a wider and deeper understanding of life. She was confined for about five years in a room in Tynemouth, and looking through her window from her sickbed to the sea-view beyond, she saw a scene which on reflection led her to dwell on macrocosmic truths. This she describes in Life in the Sick Room, published in 1844. Harriet Martineau clearly wanted her readers to understand the subjective appearance of illness, in other words, what the long-suffering felt and how they experienced life in the sick room. She authored her book anonymously as an invalid, at times directing her remarks to a readership of fellow sufferers and unknown comrades in suffering a readership she had addressed earlier in her 1834 Letter to the Deaf. This writing transcends its historical time in elaborating on psychological dimensions of illness which foreshadow 20th century medical and psychological developments and the theorising about illness, which Virginia Woolf wrote about in her 1926 essay on Being Ill, and more recently Susan Sontag, in her writing Illness as Metaphor, in which is described illness as the night side of life, a more onerous citizenship. My understanding of deafness is that it throws the individual into a profound interior world, which for some is a profound isolation. I would like to say a few words now about Harriet's experience of her own body in this context. For Harriet her feelings about deafness were from a first-person perspective, a matter of lived experience, to which she always referred herself and drew very individual conclusions. She did not adhere to the rationalist theory of body, prevalent in medical authorities in western societies, in which the body is viewed as object, Susan Wendell writes this tends to delegitimize our experiences of our bodies as sources of knowledge about them because the authoritative medical and scientific descriptions of our bodies are third-person descriptions of physical conditions. Scientific medicine following a purely rational development of thought therefore fails to acknowledge the personal meaning of illness. If, as I think, Harriet had extraordinary interior contact, made more profound through her deafness, then this is how she came to analyse her body and its functions as lived personal experience. At the outset, I quoted her writing about the onset of her deafness, in which she wrote, No one inquired what she felt or appeared to suppose she did feel. Feelings, as opposed to the rational, are often dismissed by medical practitioners as purely imaginative. But far from fantasy, she believed that invalidism had equipped her and all fellow sufferers with powers of perspective unknown to the healthy. In this, and her views on gender and other issues, she was way ahead of her time. She argued that availability of education, which privileges her own mind, must become the standard for all women. She wrote, What we have to think of is the necessity, in all justice, in all honour, in all humanity, in all prudence, that every girl's faculties should be made the most of as carefully as boys. So she believed that the cultivation of the female intellect is a necessity. Neither her deafness nor her gender impeded her life's work. Her critics saw both as her greatest liabilities, but they were the foundation of her courage, intellect and the fulfilment of her life's work. In other words, her empowerment. Thank you so much for listening. I think you will agree that in our own times which we are living in, the times of long Covid, Harriet Martineau's experience of long-term illness speaks to us very meaningfully today. Do look into joining the Harriet Martineau Society And please do listen to our next podcast in a month's time and tell your friends of our podcasts. The next podcast will be on Beethoven and his deafness. Until then, stay safe please and goodbye.